to Times Talk, the podcast where we dig a little deeper into the issues facing Malta right now. I'm Vanessa Keneally. On this episode... You feel helpless. You have, you know, you have a child and you know, you don't know if uh, he or she is sick. You don't know if they're taking good care of her. It's, it's, it's not easy. The waiting game. We speak to a mother who hasn't been able to meet her child because of COVID-19 restrictions. And... As daily press briefings on coronavirus begin to wind down, we look at the relationship between public health officials and the media over the past three months. us have never spent so much time with our children because of COVID-19 restrictions, there is a small group of people in Malta who have had no access to theirs. In fact, some of these people have never even met their kids face to face. That's because they've adopted a child from abroad, but have yet to pick them up. One such person is Angie Faruja. She and her husband adopted a two-year-old girl from India in 2017. When they decided they would like a sibling for her, they began the process again in 2018. Just as they were about to leave Malta for India in March, COVID-19 shut airports indefinitely. We started the first, the very first application in um, September 2016. We were from the very first few families we adopted from India. So at that moment, there wasn't a waiting list, you know. Not many countries were um, adopting from India at that stage. So the pool of children available was uh, quite uh, okay with the countries, you know. So now there are a lot of countries adopting from India. So the pool automatically decreases. So when we were matched with Anamika, we were, she was not even babbling as a child. We were thinking maybe she, they were thinking maybe she was mute and deaf or autistic, you know. Um, we took the chance then. We took the chance and we said, you know, I don't know how, but, but when you see the photo and sometimes it just feels right. I don't know. <laughs> you have to go with your heart sometimes. From that moment when you looked at that picture of her to the time you held her in your arms, how long was that? Six months. What did that feel like? Anxiety. A lot of waiting. You're always waiting, waiting for the call of the match, waiting for reports, waiting for the court date, waiting for the court hearings. You know, a lot of waiting, a lot. You have to keep, everybody tells you, keep yourself occupied. It's very hard because you all you think about is hair, you know, (laughs) being, it's it's helpless. I mean, you feel helpless. You have, you know, you have a child and you know, you don't know if uh, he or she is sick. You don't know if they're taking good care of her. It's, it's, it's not easy. I, I mean, like if somebody is pregnant, you know, your baby is inside you and you feel connected. Till the very end, you don't know when you're leaving. Oh my gosh, you know, we, my husband has a restaurant. We have to prepare the stuff and everything. It was August. It was like the peak of summer. <laughs> it was crazy. I had to leave, quit work and give the adoption, starting adopt, adoption leave, you know. Everything is like, and, and you can't. We just got notified like two weeks before or 10 days before. When we landed in India, oh my God, <laughs> they tell you, you're going to have a culture shock. You're going to have a culture shock. The smell, the heat, the humidity, the people, everything is like, what is this? You know, it's, is this 2009? Is this, what, that was 2017 or, or like 100 years ago? We stayed two weeks in Calcutta. So many poverty. And uh, so we went to the hotel. We, we were very welcome. The people are very, very, Indians in general are very 
lovely people, calm and mm-hmm. uh, loving, you know, and uh, funny. <laughs> so we were very welcome. We met uh, um, the Agencia Tama agent. She was a lovely Indian woman um, in our hotel on Monday morning. And we left with the taxi for Christiana Mika. All the children came running to us, except from her. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that was like another... Uh, okay. What am, what am I doing? Am I doing it right? You know? Every step, every step you feel lonely. You imagine you're, you're, you're apart from your family as well. So you don't have any support. And uh, yeah. Um, uh, by that time she started, they he- could hear her humming. Okay. So she, she, they knew she could. How old was she at two, this point? Two years. Two years. Okay. She started humming. She was very cheeky. So she was testing us already, you know, from the first time. Uh, she started connecting with my husband. With me, no, nothing. She didn't want me. All the children were playing with me and everything. And usually we are the other way around. My husband is very introvert. <laughs> and I'm the extrovert one. And I'm saying, what the hell am I doing wrong, you know? And then the following day, we just went for her um, and picked her up. That's it. And she was ours. They don't own things in the orphanage. So when, so when she was in, in our hotel room and realizing that these things are literally her, she like grasped onto them, you know? When we picked her up, she was two years, but I took clothes of a two-year-old girl, no? She she was wearing, it was all so big. She, she the, the, Her size was a six-month-year-old baby. Now she picked up weight. I mean, she's extra bright too much that she, you know, thinks about yes. things that she's not supposed to think about. But, but she suffered, you know, she suffered. Despite all the anxiety, you're going to go through it all again? Yeah. So we started the second process in September 18. This time everything was a bit slower. Um, sometimes things has happened, you know. Um, we were matched uh, with... Uh, Sadvika on the 1st of July 2019 and everything was a bit slower as well everything was slowing slowing <laughs> it depends on the judge it depends on the orphanage we've got the last document on mid-March just in time when the Prime Minister of India decided to close the borders we applied in the morning for the visa and in the evening <laughs> he refused all the visas for everyone and it was heartbreaking you know it's, uh, you can't accept it. I can't, I can't accept it even till now. You know, I try, but <laughs> how can you? Do you have any idea when you'll see your daughter? No, no idea. I'm praying every day, <laughs> every night. I'm not sleeping. Nothing. Now that we finished the process, we were allowed to do Skype calls because I think mostly until you finish the process, you're not allowed. Are you worried about her? I mean, worried if they have enough food, you know, in the orphanages. I mean, you know, it's basically, usually they are limited, let alone now. Um, we are in contact, but uh, currently for the past two weeks, um, the only picture they've sent me like two days ago, it's old pictures. So I don't know, you know, we didn't do any Skype calls. They're telling me she's okay. She's okay. <sighs> you know, I mean, she's a two-year-old, you know, you just want to, I want to fly there, walk there, like whatever, you know. I don't know what I'm going to do. They're asking me all the time, when are you coming? When are you coming? And how can I do? How can I come? You know? Yeah, I'm worried a lot. We're worried a lot. And now we have a difference, you know, um, it's a family thing. You know, when you go a husband and wife to pick up the child, we can't do that. We can't risk Anamika getting sick. So we're staying here. Uh, uh, My husband is staying here with Anamika and I'm going with my sister. 
to go in the auto. It's another heartbreaking decision we had to take. Angie's experience of her two adoption processes were notably different. Her first daughter took a year to arrive. Her second is taking a lot longer, even without the complications of COVID. That's because more couples want children from India, making waiting lists longer. But why the increase? We in Malta, we mainly adopt from foreign countries because local adoptions till date is still not very strong. The numbers are very, very, very small. That's Shirley Mifsud, co-founder of Agencia Tama, one of three private adoption agencies operating in Malta. It happens that a country opens, which means that Malta signs an, an agreement with a particular country and adoptions start from that country. But at a certain point, that country may decide, like it happened in the past, that it doesn't want anymore her, their uh, children to go to foreign uh, adopt, um, parents for various reasons. They can be because of political issues, they can be because they are um, uh, keeping the children to be adopted by the parents in the particular country, which at the end of the day is the principle behind the Hague Convention, etc. We were the first agency in Malta to get the accreditation even from the Indian government. We got the accreditation in 2016 and the first child to arrive in Malta from India was in December 2016. And since then, how many children have you adopted, helped to be adopted from India? So we have over 125 children now in Malta and we have uh, more cases which are at different stages of the adoption. Some are at matching stage, some are at court stage. Some of them are even ready, but the parents cannot go for their child because of the restrictions, current restrictions because of the COVID. But as well as India, there are other countries available. Yes, yes, there are other countries uh, such as Bulgaria and uh, Portugal. Um, there is, uh, there are also Slovakia and Latvia, etc. But people mainly adopt from India because it is the only country from where you can adopt a young child. European countries normally, um, they have older children for adoption. Now, the costs vary. It depends on the country from where you want to adopt. Um, uh, it can, just to give an idea, for example, adoption from India will cost 10,000 euros and uh, they are fully claimable from the government grant, which is currently of 10,000 euros. So basically, um, the adoption from India will be covered by the grant of the government. You've been doing this for six mm -hmm. years now. Do you think that uh, it's becoming more popular? Do you think that, I mean, do you think this factors like fertility issues or, you know, when comparing with IVF? People, uh, a lot of people think that you adopt because you cannot have your own biological children. Well, that makes a big percentage of the people who adopt. However, um, we are seeing an increase uh, in the number of couples, especially couples, married couples, who already have biological children, but uh, they go as well, they want to adopt. We have cases where they had four, for example, we had a case with four um, uh, biological children and they adopted another child. So, and that is, for me, it's very good because adoption is not only because you cannot have children. 
Adoption is an act of love, irrelevant if you have your your own biological children or not. You're seeing a rise in people adopting for different reasons. Yes. The world is becoming very small. It's not Malta now. It's the world. And uh, people are... are um, they travel more, they meet a lot of people. We have a lot of foreigners living in Malta as well, who are, and we have a, quite a good number of foreigners who live in Malta and uh, they are adopting. You see a lot of people, a lot of important people like uh, actors and like celebrities, okay, celebrities yeah. who adopt, you know. So it's more adoption is no longer something before adoption was something that you even hide it if, if possible. You don't tell people that the child has been adopted, you know. But nowadays it's something that you have to be proud of, it's not something that you hide. Adoption is something that you have to be proud of. You are doing a, a a very good action you're giving a life to a child or you're giving a future to a child still to come as daily coronavirus press briefings begin to wrap up we ask what part did the media play when it came to this pandemic At the Times of Malta, we know this is a difficult period for everyone, and we're feeling it too. We're doing our best to bring you the most factual information every day and put pressure on authorities to answer all of your questions and more. But independent journalism costs money, and we need your help. Please go to www.timesofmalta.com forward slash donations and give as little as two euro. Thank you. Bix dawk il-mizuri kolla li jahna qedin namlu, qedin namluhom bix jahna nevitaw l-infezzjoni milli tinfirrex kemm jista' jkun malajr. Allura wkoll imma bix jahna nipproteġu lill-iktar nies li huma vulnerabbli, li huma l-anzjani u dawk li għandhom mart kroniku. That's Superintendent of Public Health Charmaine Gauji speaking at one of the multiple daily press briefings held on coronavirus since the beginning of March. Our journalists were there every day asking a list of questions on your behalf. Some were answered, but many were not. So that's what we want to discuss on this episode. Joining me now is Times of Malta reporter Claire Caruana. Hi, Claire. Good morning, Vanessa. So tell me, how many press briefings do you think you've covered since uh, March? I would say roughly um, around 40, I believe. I was doing... Um, one every single day for, for around five a week. So just talk the listeners through what, what the press briefings entail. In the beginning, when it was, we used to um, attend the, the ones at the office, so physically, not online. Uh, it, we, we didn't have a fixed time yet. It was still early days. So there were instances when I would be at a separate coverage or I would be working on something else and I would have to drop everything and rush to the office of the superintendent of public health, follow the briefing, um, feedback uh, information to the newsroom, then go back to the newsroom and work on the story and develop it further. And then when we shifted to Zoom, it was a whole different um, procedure. It, it was new for everyone. So there were a couple of days when everyone was still trying to find their feet. Um, so what would happen was the, the briefing would start at half 12. So as the superintendent would be speaking, uh, I would be feeding my my editors the information 
we would be then together be while the, the, the press briefing was still ongoing we would be verifying certain information so just as an example when when the first time that we reached around 1500 uh, swab tests in one day i was pretty sure that was the highest though the, the superintendent didn't say this was a record number Obviously, that's the news that it was the highest ever. So, so while she was still speaking, we we had to look through our own data. We had to look at the numbers, so that we would be able to break that this was a record figure. This was the same, for instance, when the the number of active cases and the number of recovered cases came close to each other. So we were looking at the numbers we had reported and the numbers and our data, so that we could break an even better story while the press briefing was still ongoing. And then when you come to the question, these have become somewhat, you know, popular with, with our viewers and our listeners who would, who would wait for the journalist's questions. But we prep for, for the questions beforehand. We, we, all, we discuss it as a newsroom. But then it could be the case that some other news organization asks your question. So then while all this is happening, you need to um, think of a better question or maybe a follow up question so that you can get something else out of it. So there's a lot of behind the scenes work that, that goes into that. And and a journalist's worst nightmare doing maths on the spot. Yes, <laughs> and getting it right, hopefully. <laughs> exactly. And tell me, um, I mean, I've, I've been in, you and I have been in these meetings every morning and we have all worked together as a team to try and come up with, with questions as well as obviously facilitating our readers' questions. But the questions, we ask a lot of questions, but unfortunately a lot of questions weren't getting answered. Can you tell me more about that? Yes, I mean... When you're used to doing the the press conferences and press briefings live in person, you're used to a certain way of doing things. So I I could follow up. So it's it's not you know everyone does this all over the world. When your question isn't answered, you keep pushing until you try and get um, an answer out of the person you're you, you're asking the question. On when it's online, you lose this because you ask the question and then you're back to muted. So obviously, when I when there have been cases when either the superintendent didn't understand my question or maybe she tried to to avoid answering, I couldn't follow up. So that was, as a journalist, very frustrating. Do you think they were very controlled press briefings? Do you feel that the media was controlled in a lot of way in terms of not getting a lot of information? Yes, I do believe that sometimes there were instances where we could have had better answers. Um, then, obviously, we, we not to say that there weren't cases where it was a genuine mistake where your question wasn't answered and then we clarify afterwards and then it's answered. But I do think that there were some issues that were purposely ignored. You would get a number of journalists asking practically the same question and we still didn't have an answer. There was a lot of confusion, we'll say, about when the, when the restrictive measures came in. Um, do you feel that they were clear enough about what was acceptable compared to other countries? No, I think, I think, um, and we had to work, I worked on a number of stories, um, basically just putting out there what we don't know, which is a strange thing to report because usually you report what you know and, and the facts. And, and we were at a point where we had to say, listen, we need to um, list the things that we, we don't know. We've been asking and we, we haven't been getting any replies. We've been trying to speak to our sources, but... Um, there's this sort of confusion. I remember when the lockdown for the vulnerable, which the, the, the over 65s and the pregnant women, um, one, the prime minister was saying one thing and then the, the health authorities were saying another thing and then they were all saying the same thing and then they were all not saying anything. And literally it was a couple of hours before people were supposed to go into lockdown and they were still 
very big questions. So I think that was very frustrating, especially when you get people, obviously they, they, they start seeing you on, on their screen. So they build this relationship with you. And I started getting calls and emails from people. Can you give me more information? Can you try and find out? And you could tell they were scared. They were frustrated. And obviously that, that impacts you. That's, that's, you don't want to see that. You want to provide answers. But unfortunately, there were cases where we just we weren't given anything. Initially, the briefings were in Maltese and then it changed to English. Why do you think that happened? So the briefings were still in Maltese. The, the majority of the briefing would, would be in Maltese. However, at one point, I believe it was around in April, um, the superintendent would, would give a brief message in English. Um, obviously, you could read, if you look through the social media platforms, you could see um, foreigners, even Maltese, who were saying, can you please provide the information in English? Some people are more fluent in English. Some people are more confident reading. You know, they feel safer when it's, it's in English. We have a number of foreigners living and working in Malta. So a lot of people were, were confused. When you look at the likes of BBC Al Jazeera, when you're looking you know, at the way press briefings are done around the world. One of the biggest differences, I think, is that the the Prime Minister did not give Malta's, you know, he was very absent, I, I feel, when it came to giving the press briefings. Do you think that was a good or a bad move from his point of view? I, I think in the, in the local scenario, when you have um, partisan politics and, and it gets into every, every aspect of life, I think it was a very important move that it was the superintendent who handled it. She has, you know, I, I, I don't say, I won't say everyone because I don't know, but um, I believe she has a lot of people's respect. Um, she was very factual. She wouldn't get into um, any political comments or, or any of those sort of things. So I think that was a good move when, when you had the Prime Minister taking a step back. And finally, Claire, will you miss doing these daily press briefings? <laughs> well, I, I'll miss, I'll miss... <laughs> I miss the excitement um, I felt in the first few weeks. Um, that obviously started becoming more of a headache um, as, as, as days passed. But in the beginning, I, I, I remember sitting down and logging in and thinking, I'll remember this for the rest of my life. This is a, a moment that I'll, I'll forever you know, be thinking of, um, both professionally and personally. When you're sitting at home, you know that you're important role in this and and I think that's something that I'll, I'll miss yes thanks for listening today please take the time to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and if there's any topics you'd like us to investigate feel free to contact us at the email address timestalk at timesofmalta.com goodbye